Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. With that said, chapter two, we're going to be looking today at verses one through seven as we continue our new study in the book of Revelation. And we'll be looking at uh, leaving your first love as it is revealed to us here in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, in verses 1 through 7. And so I'll read those verses to you. And then, as is my normal way of teaching, I'm going to give to you a prolonged introduction. I'm going to give to you a uh, foundation so that you can, I think, more clearly observe what is being said. Without that foundation, it may not be, um, I may not be able to communicate the things that that really, uh, I think, are important for us to know in this passage. And so I'm going to lay a foundation. It'll take a while. And then we're going to move into the reading of and developing of the scriptures here in front of us. So let's begin reading here in Revelation chapter 2. At verse 1, I'll read verses 1 through 7, and we'll get into our study. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not Become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Uh, So, as mentioned, I'm going to lay a foundation for you. You might want to begin to relax for a moment just so you can absorb this information. Then we're going to move into the verses and look at them individually. But we know that as we've begun our study here in the book of Revelation, that the apostle John is the author. And that John, the apostle, was instructed to communicate a message. And this message is to seven churches. In chapter 1, verse 4, he had begun by saying, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so in chapter 1, he had introduced it that this is a letter to the seven churches. But he names these churches when he says, John, to the seven churches. He names them in verse 11 of chapter 1. When he, when he uh, speaks of Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so these are the seven churches, and we will be looking in chapters 2 and 3 
at letters to each one of these individual churches. Now, in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus gave John specific instructions. He said, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Write what you've seen, the things which are, and the things that are going to take place. And so, chapter 1 fulfills the first part of the command. He's writing about what he has seen. Chapters 2 and 3 fulfill the second part of the command. He's writing concerning the things which pre presently exist. Now, these things which are, these things that presently exist, would be referring to John's, what we call John's church age. He'd be speaking concerning the present church age that he's writing to at that moment, found in chapters 2 and 3. Now, when you get to chapter 4, chapters 4 through 22 will fulfill the third part of the command when he says, and what will take place later. We see in chapter 4, verse 1, for example, how it says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And so Jesus had given a specific instruction, write what you've seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place later. So as we look at chapters 2 and 3, they're going to contain seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Now, a second aspect of this I'll develop with you for a moment. Each individual letter has what is called a threefold application. You have first what is called the primary application, meaning that it has a direct bearing on the church that's being addressed. In other words, it's written to a specific congregation specific congregations in various areas. But you have the second, which is personal, because each church has people within it who need to hear what the Spirit is saying. You're going to see that. We just read it in verse 7 when it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, on the one hand, you have a, you have a, a church that's being addressed, but you have people within that church who need to hear what the Spirit is saying. And then third, you have, and we'll see this at our conclusion, you have what is called the prophetic application, because it's speaking of seven stages of church life from Pentecost to the rapture. So these churches are representing seven eras from the apostolic age to the time of the rapture of the church. And what we're going to see, and we'll see this clearly as we go through these, these letters, the letters from Jesus reveals a slow deterioration throughout church history. And they're going to be revealing to us that the church over time slowly loses her witness to the world from its inception to the rapture. It begins to lose her witness to the world. And, and you'll see that, and you can see that when you just read the, the New Testament by itself. You can read Matthew, for example. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 points that out very clearly. You see the same thing in Matthew chapter 24. You see it in First and Second Timothy, those themes of the church slowly losing her witness. You, you see that in First and Second Thessalonians and Second Peter and the book of Jude. There are whole books that are written concerning the things that relate to what Jesus is saying here in his uh, letter to the Ephesians. And so each letter contains a message. And the message can be to specific churches of the first century. But those messages can also apply to churches throughout history. They can apply to us today, meaning we can read these letters, which we are, and be benefited, blessed, instructed, and encouraged. 
Now, I pointed out in chapter 1, verse 13, that that verse revealed Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. We know according to verse 20 of chapter 1 that the lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is revealed in the midst of the lampstands or the churches. He's in the midst of the churches because being in the midst of the churches is another way of pointing out that he's the Lord of that church. Remember how Jesus spoke to the apostle Peter and remember how he had said to him, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's in the midst of the churches because they belong to him. He purchased the church through redemption. The churches belong to Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we read, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So through redemption, the purchase of the church, we belong to Jesus Christ. So as the Lord of the church, he holds us accountable to him. Now, when we looked in chapter 1, verse 13, we saw that his clothing is symbolic of judgment as well as dignity. And John was pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah, son of man. And as the Lord of the church, he's calling the church to accountability. And he's revealing the moral and spiritual history of the church. And so as we look at Ephesus, Ephesus represents what would be called the apostolic period of church history. And those who study such subjects of church history would say that the apostolic period uh, is normally regarded from Pentecost to the year 160 A.D. Now, I mentioned in our introduction that the seven churches were on the Roman mail route. So Ephesus represents the first church on that route. And as we look at Ephesus, Ephesus represents the church busy in its infancy, but slowly leaving its first love. Now, when you look at Ephesus historically as a city, during the time of the writing, Ephesus was what is called a chief city in Asia Minor. When you look at a map, Asia Minor is actually Turkey. It was a major marketplace. It was located on the Caister River on the Aegean Sea. And by ancient standards, Ephesus was huge. It had a population of over 250,000 people. It was the main center of Greek culture and was a center of idolatry. It had a temple called the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And those who do this kind of research said that this particular temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high. It had 127 marble pillars, 36 of which were overlaid with gold and jewels. It had an image of a multi-breasted fertility goddess. The city of Ephesus had well-paved streets. It had public buildings. It had a scientific center, a medical center. It had a library it was famous for. It was the third largest library in the, in the region and in the ancient world. It had between 12 to 15,000 scrolls, and it had a theater that seated 56,000 people. That's a huge theater, guys. And so it was well known. As a matter of fact, that theater is occupied now. They use that theater 
for concerts and various things to this day. They've rebuilt it to the point that they can use it again. It had an economy that was very strong, but it was built on selling images of Diana. It was also uh, built on, on uh, soothsaying and the practice of magic. It was famous for its poets, for its philosophers, as well as its fashion. Acts 19 shows Paul served here for three years, and he planted a church in Ephesus on his third mission in A.D. 58. And so, by the time of the writing of Revelation, the Ephesian church had existed for almost 40 years. And when you look at it and you read the Bible, some of the greatest teachers who ever lived had taught as well as pastored in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, and Apollos, a well-known and very eloquent speaker, had lived and served in Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said it like this. He said, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Church tradition holds that John pastored in Ephesus. It's believed that from Ephesus, John wrote his gospel, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And there's a story concerning John, a church tradition that says when John was an old man in Ephesus, he had to be carried to the church in the arms of his disciples. And at these meetings, he would say no more than little children love one another. After a time, the disciples, wearied at always hearing the same words, asked, Master, why do you always say this? And John replied, it's the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. This is a very important city. It's one that was very strategic. And so Jesus writes a letter to the angel in verse 1 of the church of Ephesus. And so when it says to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he begins to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, you read the word angel, and normally, of course, we think in terms of uh, heavenly messengers and all. The word angel does obviously apply to those um, who have been created and those who are involved with, with the Lord through worship and, and everything else, the angels, the angelic host. But the word angel doesn't always simply refer to uh, uh, one of the created beings who serve at the throne of God and all. The word angel is translated also by the word messenger. It speaks of a representative, and it can speak of a pastor. Uh, the word messenger actually applied, for example, to John the Baptist. That's how the word was used with him in Matthew 11, verse 10, where it says, uh, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way before you. That word messenger speaks of this angel. It speaks in the same way. So for that reason, uh, this, this, there, the many commentators uh, believe that this letter is, is, is written not to an angel who is a guardian angel. This is a, an angel in, in terms of using the word to speak of the pastor, the messenger, the pastor of the church there in Ephesus. And so this letter and the way that we, we approach it is that this is a letter to the pastor as well as the church. And so as you look at it, notice how it says these things. It says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand 
who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Um, each letter begins with an application of the description you find of Jesus in chapter 1, and this is actually taken out of verse 20 of chapter 1, speaking of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So he begins with a word to the pastor, the pastor who is empowered and secured by Jesus Christ. And notice what he's saying. He's saying, I hold you in my right hand, and I'm walking in the midst of the congregation. I'm holding you in my right hand, but I am judging your ministry. In chapter 1, verse 13, he had said that he was in the midst of the seven lampstands, but now he's walking in the midst of it. He was at one time, if you will, just standing, but now he's walking. That's a picture of judgment. He's no longer saying, I'm the center of the church. He's saying, I'm walking in your midst. I'm closely examining you. I'm judging you. I'm inspecting you. I'm surveying what is taking place. And he's saying it to the pastor. And he's saying to the pastor, and I'm holding you responsible. I'm holding you most responsible. You have been appointed to shepherd the church, and I'm speaking first to you. So I, I think we need to ignore this and move on to other verses. <laughs> he always speaks first to the leadership. And he's speaking first to the pastor. And he's saying, I hold you accountable. In Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 17, the writer said, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. He says to the church, listen to your, your spiritual leadership because ultimately your spiritual leaders, speaking specifically to, to pastors like myself, will give an account of how they cared for you. And so I take this very seriously as a pastor because God is saying, even from the beginning, Jesus is saying, I'm in the midst, I'm walking there and I'm scrutinizing, I am making judgment, I'm evaluating and I'm writing to you, pastor, because I hold you most accountable. Spiritual leaders need to be very careful that we lead people to Jesus Christ. I think that today, unfortunately, there are, there are some who have perhaps missed that, missed that, missed that in terms of not understanding that we're not cheerleaders or, or we're, we're not people who are supposed to try and build up big empires or we're not supposed to be those who are lording it over or whatever. Uh, what we are is we're to be servants and examples, and, and, and Jesus holds us in, in, in tremendous responsibility for that. Why? Because ultimately we give an account of ourselves to God. And in Hebrews 13, 17, he says they watch over your souls. They are accountable to God. And so Jesus is speaking here first and foremost to the pastor of the church, and he's saying, I am holding you responsible. In James 3, verse 1 James said, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So the warning begins with the pastor because he influences the health of the church. But it also applies to the church itself because they have personal responsibility. That's why it says in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
It applies to the pastor as well as everybody else. You see, the pastor influences, but the church applies what they learn. You come and you have a Bible study, and you apply that. If the pastor is doing what he's called to do, the church is also called to do what the church is called to do. And so he teaches, but the church also listens. And so he says in, in verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So he begins with commendations. He's commending the Ephesian pastor as well as the church. And notice how he begins. He says, first, he says, I know your works and labors. Uh, I'm, I'm watching you. I'm fully aware of your constant service. And also, I'm aware of your weariness, the weariness that you suffer with. You see, the word labor there speaks of weariness. You see, the pastor and the church is busy. Their lives are filled with service. Their church is filled with good works, and the good works are intended to evidence faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so they're laboring, and, and it reveals an intense religious devotion. So he's saying, you're aflame with activity. In your labors, you are tireless to the point of sweat. You're not pew potatoes. You're, you're not spectators in the church. You're not content to eat the produce of other people's labor. You work to harvest your own crop. You're busy. When you read Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 16, that verse speaks of every member doing their share. And that's what the church was doing. So you're not content to just watch. You're there actively involved. And I commend you for that. He says in verse 2 also, I, I know your patience, your endurance. You have a courageous and, and steadfast endurance under pressure. And you are enduring hardship. You've gone through trials, but you've held fast. Now, this is something Paul made mention of in his second letter to Timothy once again. Timothy was the pastor over the church of Ephesus. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, he said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So they've undergone various pressures, but they have remained faithful. He says, Thirdly, you cannot bear those who are evil. That word bear, you cannot endure. You do not support those who are evil. You have a proper standard of behavior. You do what, it's right, what is right. You have retained your moral purity. You have held a standard of holiness, and, and you've enacted discipline on those who are in sin, who are in error. You have done so, and you have kept the church the way that it's necessary to be kept. You've been taught this. Again, in Ephesians, Paul had written the, the letter to the Ephesians, and, and he had said in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You have a moral purity. You know, today we unfortunately, and I've seen this more than once, we have not just members of congregations who, who are, are violating what Paul said in Ephesians 5 with sexual immorality and impurity and all, but obscene stories and coarse jokes, sometimes you'll get that from pulpits. I've heard pastors 
who use profanity and all. And he said, this isn't for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. And so he's saying you've held a standard of holiness. A fourth thing he said is you have tested those who say they are apostles and you have found them liars. You've maintained purity of your doctrine. You've held fast to what has been delivered to you. Now, here's something for you. Remember that this letter here, the book here actually, was written between the years 90 and 96 A.D. John would have been the last living apostle. He was the last living man appointed by Jesus Christ. But false teachers had infiltrated the church. But the Ephesians had been aware of that. You see, they'd been taught well. They were prepared for this. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses one uh, verse, uh, verse 13, uh, Pastor Timothy was told to hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you've heard from me in faith and love, which are, which are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 13 and 14, Paul had said, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them. So Paul had warned them many years before about false teachers. Remember in the book of Acts in chapter 20, how that Paul was speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. He was in a place called Miletus, and he was giving them final instructions because he was saying, you will not see me again. And as he was instructing them, he warned them about infiltration. And Paul was speaking to the elders. And in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, he had said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock of your own selves, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And so they were warned. They were properly instructed. And so when the false apostles tried to deceive them, they applied scripture and tested them. False apostles entered in. They attempted to lead them astray. Instead of believing them, they put them to the test. They heeded Paul's warning, and they did that. He says in verse 3, you have persevered. You have patience. You've labored for my name's sake. You've gone through trials, but you've remained faithful, Jesus says to me. And then fifth, he says, you have not become weary. You've kept working for some time. You've labored tirelessly. And have not wanted to quit and have not wanted to give up. In Galatians 6, verse 9, Paul said, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And so, as I was looking at this, I couldn't help but write this down. This church sounds like a pastor's dream church. They work tirelessly, they endure pressure, they live with purity, they Test teachers, they're faithful, and if you brought it up to 21st uh, century standards, it would be like the church had programs, it has worship bands, it has great events, it has outreaches, it has missions, it has buildings, it has a lot of Bible studies, and yet I want you to see this, in spite of all of this, Jesus issues a warning in verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Hey, the honeymoon's over. Your once fiery love for me has grown cold. 
a slow, imperceptible decline has gone unchecked. Now, the church is filled with second and third generation Christians and has become cold to Jesus. So he's saying you have tradition without intensity, you have labor without love, you have light without heat. You become rigid in your traditions and you're morphing into an organization. Your church is becoming a religious institution. You're active. You're sound in teaching. You're filled with good people. But you're leaving your first love. The heart of Jesus is concerned. I desire you. But you don't desire me. If you take notes, you might want to note that the word Ephesus means desired. That's what the word means, desired. I desire you, but you don't desire me. I want you, but you don't want me. I wonder if there's anybody in this room who's ever had that on a normal kind of a human relationship kind of plane where you were in love with someone and you felt you were in love with them. They didn't love you. I'm married to a woman like that. No, I'm just. <laughs> oh, you're here. I'm 17 years old. Terribly in love because 17 years old. You can be. Her name was Terry. Marie calls her dead. <laughs> I went to go see her. I was so in love. And I came, pulled up in front of her house, and I had a, uh, a kind of like a hot rod kind of car, so it made some noise when I pulled up. And here she comes running out of the front door and meets me uh, on the driveway, comes around. The garage was in front, and then you had to walk up past the garage to get to the front door. So she hurried from the front door and met me at the, at the garage door there before I could come and walk up to the front door. Oh, she's acting all sweet and everything with me, and, and I'm just looking at her like, you know, a love-struck cow. <laughs> and... And her dad opens the door and says, Terry, make up your mind. She said, you've got Scott here in the house. And you got David standing there in the front yard. Make up your mind. Anybody ever been in that kind of situation? <laughs> Terry, are you listening? I hate you. <laughs> to this day. I looked at her like, I, I still remember just that amazed, like, I don't believe you just did this, right? I climbed in my car and I drove home, and I stormed into the house screaming at the top of my lungs, I will never love again, you know. <laughs> I love you, but you don't love me. You ever been there? 
I love you, but you don't love me. Can you imagine that? Jesus is saying, I desire you, Ephesus. You ever been there? But you don't desire me. You ever think of it that way? You're desired. But you're leaving your first love. Something has taken your heart from me. The voice of Christ speaking to the church in the first century. You're leaving me. You don't love me like you once did. You're, you're going through the motions. You're maintaining proper doctrine. But love for me and love for other people, it's fading. You see, it's possible to have an active congregation that is not loving not loving him and not loving others. You see, loving God and loving others is the birthmark of a believer. We perform good works. It's part of being a believer. That's called the fruit of faith. And the foundation of, of such works and activity, though, has always got to be a love for Jesus Christ. And the Ephesian church is leaving their first love. Again, I mentioned that they'd been in existence for almost 40 years. That represents generations. It speaks of grandparents who gave their faith to children, who gave their faith to their children, and, and that's what's taking place. And a generation has arisen. The church is still filled, but it doesn't have the love of God. People can attend. They are there for tradition or for whatever reason, but they're not there for the right one. It's of utmost importance to focus our attention on who Jesus is and what he's done. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons produces Pharisees. You see, after Peter's denial of Jesus and his failure, Jesus restored him. But the first thing that Jesus asked Peter was, do you love me? To which Peter said, yes, I do. You see, Peter loved Jesus. And because Peter did, Jesus said, feed and tend my sheep and my lambs. Because love for Jesus will always be the foundation of service to him. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, Paul said, though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so love for Christ is, is what matters. And so Jesus says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember verse 5, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember. You see, Jesus gives a solution and that solution to the first century church uh, uh, and uh, early church applies to us today. Remember, he's saying, repent, he says, and return. He says, remember, remember what Jesus saved you out of. Remember what you were before you were saved. The church had once been famous for its faith and love for God and others. And throughout the church world, the church was well known for this faith. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 said, I heard of your faith in the Lord 
in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. But over the years, they had gotten busy and forgotten why they served him. Renewed life begins where you met Jesus. You serve him out of gratitude. Remember. Remember. For just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do that. For just a moment, for those of you who are saved. To remember that. What was your life like before you got saved? Now, God bless you who are raising Christian homes and and right now you, you're looking up here saying, I've, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. Praise the Lord. I, I'm blessed to know that. But others of you were like me. You, you came to faith in Christ along the line. And you already had a life that you were living that was far from God. Maybe you were violent. Maybe you were angry all the time and fighting all the time and picking quarrels with people, just always angry. Or maybe you were an alcoholic. Maybe you loved your alcohol, you loved your wine, you loved your gin, whatever it was you drank. You loved it. You didn't just drink it. You loved it. Maybe you did your drugs. You enjoyed your drugs. I loved drugs. That's what I was. I was in love with drugs. I was in love with marijuana. I was in love with psilocybin. I was in love with... Uh, THC, I enjoyed acid, it was expensive, but I liked it. We had something called keef that we used to smoke and hash that we used to smoke, a variety of things. And I'm not here selling anything, by the way. I, I, I see some of you guys going, that sounds pretty good, never tried that. I haven't forgotten. I don't want to go back. I don't look at it as something that I miss. God knows that. Do you remember what you were? Do you remember? I remember. I remember waking up in the pool of my own vomit because I drank so much I passed out. I woke up in my own vomit. Many of you understand what I just said. You did it yourself. A lot of people did. Maybe you were violent. You woke up with bruises and don't even remember how you got it because you got in a fight. You've been drinking. You got mad. You got in a fight. There's a lot of people like that. Then you came to faith in Christ. And when you came to faith in Jesus, you heard that message somehow. And the Holy Spirit broke through. And, and you heard it and you said... I'm a sinner. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, am, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm hurting people. I'm lying. I'm stealing. I'm breaking people's hearts. I can't keep a relationship. I'm going from one person to the next. I can't, I, I'm just unsatisfied. I'm, I'm just so lonely. And, and whatever it was, and the Holy Spirit broke in. And I don't know about you. Maybe you got excited. Maybe you cried. Maybe, maybe you just smiled. I don't know. For me, it was that moment of, oh, Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Thank you for the new life that you gave to me. Thank you for washing me of my sins. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then you get busy. You get involved in this, get involved in that. When I first got saved, 
We looked at Bible studies the way we looked at uh, parties. People would say, there's a Bible study in La Habra tonight. Let's go. We get in the car and we drive over to La Habra and go to a Bible study. Walk in, hey, praise the Lord, brother, sister, because we were saved. We would go to, I, I got saved and started going into Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And so I would go there to this little chapel and, and I had several friends. We'd climb in, the, uh, in a car and we would drive back to, to uh, I believe it was La Habra. And uh, one of my friends was, was uh, leasing a house, renting a house. And, and all of these people would come and we'd all sit around and, and, um, and we'd have what was called afterglows where, where we would sit in a circle. And I was brand new to this. I, I still remember it. And when I say it, it's true. I would sit, we would sit in, because hippies didn't need furniture, we would sit on the floor. And so I'm just learning this Christian stuff, right? So, so you know, I, I'm kind of freaked by it, weirded by it, because the guys will walk up and hug you and stuff, and I, I didn't like it, you know. I, you know, I love you, brother. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And then, the, then these, these Jesus freaks would sit on a floor and hold hands. And I would squeeze that guy's hand so he wouldn't get any ideas <laughs> about this guy. Ooh, I like strong hands. Oh, it's back. It, Oh, it's backfiring. <laughs> this, that's true stuff. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making it up. We would sit. We would pray. We would sing. And then we would talk about the Bible study. That's what we did. What did you get out of the Word tonight? And we talk about that. And how are you going to do it? And how are you going to? And how can we? That was my life. See, I was in love with Jesus Christ. He opened my eyes, opened my ears, touched my heart, gave me a family, forgave me of my sins. He teaches me how to think because I need to learn a new way. I'm supposed to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And the way your mind is renewed is by being in the Word of God. He washes me with the water of the Word, and, and I'm learning these things, right? I, like all of you who are saved, in one way or another, that's what was going on. Then I got drafted. I went into the army. And going into the army is a little tough because there's very few believers that I knew. And so I'm starting to think, here I am by myself in the military. What am I going to do? So God brings a guy into my life named Danny Rendon, Rendon but I called him Rendon. And Danny, Danny was from Baytown, Texas. Can anything good come from Texas? Well, Danny did. <laughs> and Danny put me in his care. He was an older Christian. He'd been raised in the faith of Christ. He helped me. And so I was with him in fellowship. I get out of the service and, and, and I, go, I start going to Biola College. I want to learn about Jesus. I end up teaching a Bible study. And then one day I'm teaching a Bible study here in the city of Ontario. And some young woman shows up and, and she needs Christ. And she comes to faith two weeks into the study. And she needs discipling. I, I, I marry her. And so what happens? <laughs> Is here we are now, almost 40 years later, but it started 50 years ago, this 
47 years ago this month, I taught my first Bible study. 47 years ago this month, I taught my first Bible study. Taught my dad, taught my mom, taught some neighbors. From there, the rest is history. And so I don't want to forget where I came from. Remember from whence you have fallen. What did you do when you were first saved? Because what happens with people sometimes, sadly, is they got saved, they're in love with the Lord, they meet somebody in church, they begin to date, they serve together sometimes, they end up getting married, they begin having their children, and before you know it, they don't do the first things anymore. They're not going to Bible study. Church begins to be a once in a while thing. Well, you know, the kids play soccer on, on Sunday, and we've got, you know, they got, they're on the uh, Little League, and, and they start putting things before Jesus, and then their family begins to corrode. And the kids don't have faith in God because the faith that they're going to have in God has to be imparted by you, your example, your devotion, your service, because you are their pastor, you see? And so Jesus is speaking to a first century church that is left its first love. You're drifting slowly but surely. Oh, yes, you're doing good things, and that's wonderful. But you're not acting like you did when you were first saved. And then he says, secondly, repent. Reject the sin of coldness. You see, religious people can sometimes be the most harsh and even cold. We can become so angry at people who reject Jesus that we lose compassion for them. My mom was a new believer, and she was a real evangelistic kind of lady. My mom liked to tell people about Jesus, and, and uh, one day she walks up to me, and she says, you know what, honey? I was telling someone about Jesus, and they, they rejected him. So I said, then you can go to hell. And I said, no, Mom. <laughs> right, honey? I said, no, Mom. That's not what you do. She said, but that's where they're going. Yeah, Mama, but you're not. Like, don't smile when you say that. <laughs> My mom was a firecracker. She really was. She was a firecracker. And when she was first saved, that she really did say that she really was that way. And I had to, from the beginning, I had to say, oh, no, Mama, that's not how we do it. That's not how Jesus did it with you. And that's not how he is with other people. But when you're walking sometimes in religiosity, then you don't understand how those people can do what they do. Well, guess what? They do what they do because they don't know Jesus. That's why they do what they do. And that's why I did what I did, because I didn't know Jesus. And rather than having somebody telling me how bad I was, which I already knew, but when they told me the gospel of how a bad person like me could be saved by a good person like Jesus, that's good news. That's why it's called the gospel, because that's great news. He is able to do what I couldn't do. He could transform my wicked life, and he can conform me to his. That's great news. And so people loved me enough to tell me the truth, but they told me the truth of how God loved and cared. And guess what happens? The church gets mad. Looking at society that the, the way it is right now, there are a lot of angry Christians. A lot of angry Christians. 
And uh, the, the, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm not saying that there isn't a time for a just sense of this is wrong, we need to make it right. Because there is a time for us to stand up for righteousness, of course. But my heart has to be careful that it is not in opposition to those who know no better. I have a man by the name of Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so we need to have a love still and a compassion, even though I can't accept the things they're doing. I do want them to know the Savior who can change them. And so we need to be careful. We need to repent from religious attitudes. We need to remember how great Jesus has been to us. And then he says, return, return. You can run for many years. It only takes one step to return. He says, do the first works. Return to your love. Return to your love for me. Return to your love for the word of God. Return to your love for, for prayer, for worship, for fellowship. Return to these things out of love for Jesus, not just because you should go to church. Return. Come back to the first things. You see, the primary and personal message went unheeded by the Ephesians, and that leads us to the prophetic element of his letter to Ephesus because he says in verse 5 or else, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, that's not speaking of his second coming. It's speaking of a judgment that is sure to come. You see, failure to respond to the warning results in my presence being removed. And to quench his presence, well, it'll leave only gimmicks to attract people to attend church services. A church needs a center on glorifying God. It needs a center on a love for God, for his son. It needs to be centered on on. On the spirit of God, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It, it's, you know, we're, we've been asked in the, in the past, what is, what is the key to all of this? And I, I was taught through scripture, but my pastor who said, uh, he said, there are two things that you need. you need. You need the word of God and you need the power of God's Holy Spirit. And, and that's what we need today. Because if you, you have the word of God without the power of the Holy Spirit, then what you're going to end up with sometimes is a dryness. But if you have the power of the Holy Spirit without the Word of God, then you find things that are out of control. But when you have the Word of God and, and the power of the Spirit combined, then you have Christ present in your midst. And, and so through the Word of God and the, and the power of God, you have a successful life. You have a, a blessed life, and you have a church that is doing the will of God. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst and not gimmicks and not ways to get people into the church building. And so he says, you need to return. You see, you have left your first love. He didn't say that you've lost it. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. You've left. That means I know where it is and I can return to it. So he's saying you need to return to that. But, verse 6, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's interesting how that's thrown in. The Nicolaitans? Who are these people? Well, the Nicolaitans are mentioned again. We'll see them in the church of Pergamos in chapter 2, verse 15. Little is known about these Nicolaitans, except that they are heretics. And they were associated with one by the name of Nicholas. Church uh, commentators and historians point out that there was a Nicholas in the book of Acts, verse 6, who served as a deacon in the early church. 
And so commentators say that either he left the Christian faith or his disciples twisted his teachings. Nobody knows with certainty. But verse 6 says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Notice verse 15 speaks of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So the Ephesians had rejected the deeds, but the church of Pergamos, the teachings. You see, the word Nicolaitan is literally translated laity conquerors. It's interpreted as the Nicolaitans establishing what has been called a priesthood over the church. They wanted to be the priests and refused the priesthood of the believer. They wanted to be the ones to dictate what to believe and how to act without the church individually sensing the call and understanding through the word of God of how to live. And their deeds were the fruit of their doctrine. And the doctrine seems to have led to sexual immorality and idolatry. We'll see that. That would speak of using their liberty as a cloak for vice, as 1 Peter 2.16 warns us about false teachers. So he says, you hate their teachings and you hate the fruit of it. And I commend you. And then he finally says this in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life symbolizes eternal life. The paradise of God refers to heaven. So guard yourself against having a cold heart. Proper Bible teaching and proper belief does not make up for an indifference towards Jesus Christ. So rekindle, stir up, remember where you came from, repent, and then return. Come back to your first love. How have I stayed faithful to the Lord by following these things here? Does that matter? I think it does. Somebody says, well, how do you know that's true? I mean, what if it's not true? What if you die and you become food for worms? You know what doesn't matter, does it, at the end? My life's been blessed. My life has been so blessed. Okay, so somebody says, what if you're wrong? But what if I'm right? And I am. Why? Because God has said so. And I believe it. And that settles it. Does it really matter what man says? Let God be true. And every man a liar. And God's word is true. And so I hold fast to him. And the Lord is calling us to just to live for him and to love him. We sang earlier, my eyes are dry, my faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. What can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. We used to sing that song here when it first uh, was real well known. Keith Green was the one who was known for that song. We would sing that. 
because we didn't want our hearts to become like beef jerky. We wanted our, our hearts to remain soft towards God. And one of these days, and it's not that long from now for me, I'll be looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ. I get to see the eyes of the one who wept for me in that garden. I get to see the one who was hanged on a tree, the one who was placed in a tomb. I get to see him face to face, and it's not that long from now for me. And I will approach him, and I will worship him, and I will, I will do so not because I was so good, but because he was. And I have an opportunity to say to him, and I will, how much I love him, how much I appreciate him, and all that he's done for me. And out of a heart of gratitude, even to this day, I want to serve him. I encourage you to do the same. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know if you don't do it. We need to practice what we hear so that the Lord will show us how great he is in our life. May we remember and may we repent and may we return. According to Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. May we come to solid walk with the Lord, even today. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.